One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey, we're back with the Inflammation Nation, and we're still talking about cortisol. Um, as you can tell, I mean, there's so far we've had more episodes speaking about cortisol than we have some of the other hormones. And, you know, just, I guess, word of warning, that doesn't mean that cortisol is more important than any of the others. Um, it's just that it kind of seemed natural in the flow of talking about these hormones and what they do to start to make some interconnections. And uh, we'll probably go back and, and do some of that with some of the hormones that we've already talked about. So I don't want you to think that, oh, well, he only talked like two episodes on insulin. So that's not as important as cortisol or thyroid or whatever. That, that's not true. That's just simply how the flow of this discussion, this conversation has gone. Um, so I want to pick up where we left off in the in the last episode, where we talked about uh, circadian rhythm abnormalities with cortisol, and how we can look at someone's symptom picture, how their energy and brain function goes throughout the day, their sleep patterns, and we can kind of map out, at least in, in a loose correlation way, um, what their circadian rhythm might look like, although it's always better, almost always better, to run a saliva test and actually see that, uh, figure out really exactly what's happening with that. And so what I said at the end of last episode was that uh, I wanted to pick this up again and, and go back into this phenomenon that's very common uh, out there in the world and certainly in, in my practice with my clients. And that is someone who uh, may or may not fall asleep quickly, but actually wakes up frequently throughout the night. And it's important to talk about because it is so common. And it's also important to talk about because in most cases, the fix is very simple. Let me rephrase that. The, the fix is readily identifiable. It doesn't mean it's easy to fix. And, and I'll tell you what I tell the doctors that attend seminars that I've been teaching for the last, well, since about 2008, is that about 80% of the time when you have these sleep maintenance issues, meaning you're waking up with some frequency or regularity, about 80% of the time, the solution is found in the realm of uh, blood sugar control and adrenal status. And I'll put those two together because, you know, they're intimately linked, as you should know by now, if you've been listening to this podcast, the role of cortisol is to support blood sugar, adequate fuel for activity and crisis. Um, and I'm not going to go into the mechanisms by which it does that. If you don't know and you haven't listened, listen to the last two episodes and, and that will bring you up to speed. But, you know, the the expectation, if I, if I, if I ask someone to adopt an erratic diet to not deal with stressors, you know, in other words, we if we decide to somehow induce a blood sugar adrenal dysfunction, I can almost guarantee you that that person's, whatever sleep pattern was before, it's going to get dysregulated even further. And so they go from either not having a sleep issue to having one or having a sleep issue to having a worse one. But I think to understand how this all fits together, it's probably important for us to talk first about how cortisol levels and blood sugar control work together to promote normal sleep. 
and and I hope I don't get too detailed on this. And you know, honestly, it is my tendency to share more information than perhaps is necessary. Um, but one of the reasons why I decided to start doing this podcast is because I've you know just watched over the years as the people coming to see me as as personal coaching clients have become more sophisticated in their understanding and knowledge of how their bodies are working. And so the conversations are different between my clients and I than they were 10 years ago. And I would expect in another five years, most of my clients would be that much more well-educated and sophisticated. So I think it's important for you to know some of these mechanisms. Maybe perhaps you're working with someone um, on your health and they don't understand these things, you know, maybe you can have some kind of a provocative and revealing conversation because you say, hey, doc, what about this? But anyways, we'll leave that to the side. So here's how it works in general. And understand that I'm mapping out the bigger picture and there certainly are um, exceptions to the rule. There is biochemical individuality, so you may not fit perfectly within this framework that I'm going to describe. But let's start with what normal is. In general, let's say that the average person eats their last meal. Well, actually, back up even further. Let's assume for the most part that the theoretical person we're talking about has a glucose-based energy system. Everyone has a glucose-based energy system. What I mean by that is they're, they're running their day-to-day -day diet and energy needs based on carbohydrates. There are exceptions, of course, based on people who have low-carb, they're keto, they're burning ketones for fuel. Let's not factor that in because that's that will complicate the conversation to a, a certain degree. So let's assume for the moment that somebody is running a carbohydrate-based energy system. So they're relying on uh, carbohydrates and glucose that they're consuming with their meals and their snacks. And they're also relying on the ability of their metabolic systems to access glucose or to increase glucose in between periods when they're not eating. And this goes back to the role of cortisol and its complex interplay with things like adrenaline and glucagon and insulin and how all those hormones work together in periods of fasting or relative fasting where the body needs to get blood sugar up in the absence of, of food intake, which perfectly describes what happens when we're sleeping. You know, it's not like we have immediately available glucose for fuel from 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. And your brain just goes, okay, well, hey, we have enough on board right now. We don't have to worry about fuel until we wake up in the morning and, and hopefully we're hungry and we go have breakfast. And so basically the way the human system is designed is that either through the period, you know, like during your waking hours or certainly while you're sleeping and you're not consuming food, your brain has an ability to sense what your blood sugar level is, what its energy demands are, and it will invoke or trigger different mechanisms to maintain its own fuel supply. Your brain is perhaps the most energy dependent system that we have. In fact, all of the, the current models of things like neurodegeneration are based on energy deficits. Other factors obviously involved with that, but it's called the energy linked excitotoxicity model. And if you deprive the brain of fuel, it will dysfunction and, dis and degenerate and eventually it will die if you deprive it uh, long enough. Um, and so back to our theoretical person who's running their energy systems on a carbohydrate glucose-based system. They're eating with some frequency and regularity during the day, but then they go to bed at 10 o'clock, maybe 10.30, and let's say they fall asleep by 11. There is enough immediately available glucose from their last meal 
and just kind of like the low-hanging fruit, that the brain has enough sustainable energy to last for several hours. So let's so say that sleep onset begins at 11, and let's just assume for this case example that the theoretical person falls asleep pretty easily. Well, they only have enough fuel for several hours, and we get to about 2 o'clock in the morning, and the blood sugar levels start to drop because we're consuming energy while we're sleeping. The brain is a big consumer of that. While we're not bringing extra carbohydrates or glucose in. And so we kind of have a mismatch between the input and the output. We're burning more glucose than we're taking in because we're not eating because we're asleep. And so the brain is smart enough to know, hey, we're asleep. It's probably not good for me to wake up to go eat something. That's very inefficient if you had to wake up every couple of hours while you're sleeping to go eat to keep your, your body and your brain fueled. That would be an incredibly inefficient system. And so the brain is smart enough to know that. And it says, okay, well, we're not going to wake up and drive a hunger response. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the adrenal glands or the adrenal system, I should say. And we're going to request some assistance in getting our blood sugar up because we know blood sugar is dropping and that's not good. We can't work when there's no fuel or there's less fuel. So let's make sure that we have fuel sufficiency. And so the brain taps into this HPA axis, the, how the brain controls the adrenal system. And under ideal circumstances, we get just kind of a little squirt of cortisol, maybe about two o'clock in the morning. And as long as everything else is working fine, as it's designed, that little squirt of cortisol will help to increase blood sugar temporarily, again, say around two o'clock in the morning, and the brain is happy and says, okay, we compensated. You're not eating because you're asleep. We went to the backup plan, which is cortisol. We got a little squirt of cortisol, and now blood sugar rises up through gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. And now all of a sudden we have adequate fuel and we're satisfied. Well, you can imagine at two o'clock when you get that initial squirt of cortisol and blood sugar comes up, you're still consuming glucose as your fuel supply. You're still not eating because you're still asleep. And a couple hours later, the same thing happens. Blood sugar starts to drop. The brain senses that and says, okay, it's not time to wake up and go have breakfast yet. We're still not eating because we're sleeping, don't, want, don't really want to wake up, so let's go back to the adrenal gland. And now by the time it goes to the adrenal system the second time and asks for a second squirt of cortisol, the first squirt has not yet fully been consumed. And so if we were to, if we were able to measure the cortisol secretion, if you will, or the cortisol production while somebody is sleeping, Every couple of hours or so, there's going to be variability here, but about every couple of hours, you're going to see this little squirt of cortisol, and then it will begin to degrade. As blood sugar comes down, there's another squirt of cortisol, and the second squirt adds to the first one, and so on. And so there's this kind of stair-stepping effect from cortisol going from its lowest part at night when you first fall asleep, and every couple of hours it goes up a little bit, down a little bit, and then up a little bit more, and down a little bit. And by the time we get to maybe six o'clock in the morning, cortisol has stared step its way up until the cortisol level reaches a threshold, which will then trigger what's called the reticular activating system, which is basically the waking system of your brain that then engages all those mechanisms that says, hey, let's wake up, let's get energy going because we have a day to go tackle and things to accomplish. Hi there, it's Dr. Noseworthy. I want to extend my appreciation to all of you in the Inflammation Nation who have helped my podcast become a great success in these first few months. I truly appreciate you. 
Also wanted to let you know about my brand new do-it-yourself online program called the five-step gut protocol. I designed this program for people who want to take charge of their own health and stop waiting around for someone else to tell them what to do. I've combined old naturopathic principles with cutting-edge research to create a truly unique program that will help you construct your own gut protocol. If you've ever wondered if you have gut infections, a leaky gut, or a bad microbiome, then this program will walk you through the steps to figure that out and gives you the tools that you need to formulate a practical strategy to help make things better. I guarantee at the end of this course you'll know more about your gut than your doctor does and you will feel confident that you know how to address your unique situation. You can check it out at my website at www.drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com. And just look for the tab at the top that says the programs. Thanks for listening. So during the nighttime period when we're sleeping and there is no expectation of in of taking in food as a fuel source, the brain has this fairly simple mechanism. I mean, I'm tempted to say sophisticated because it's just incredible how the brain and the body is designed to do this. But we have this fairly simple mechanism where the brain senses low fuel, goes to the adrenal system, asks for some cortisol, we get a little squirt, blood sugar comes up, energy is good, and then two hours later it just cycles through the same process. Now as long as everything works well, you stay asleep, the brain doesn't interrupt your wakefulness, and we see this stair-stepping of cortisol to the point where early in the morning, 6, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, whatever it is for your, your own individual biochemical uh, uniqueness, we trigger that reticular activating system and now we wake up and we go about our day. Now, ideally, you should wake up mentally focused and energetic. You shouldn't feel dragged out and beat up from the day before. You should go, wow, that was a good night's sleep. And in most cases, you should be a little bit hungry. Now, that might change if you're on low carb and you're burning fat for fuel. There's other things that go into whether you are or are not hungry. First thing in the morning, I mean. So what ends up happening when you have this low cortisol state? And let's not even factor in blood sugar for the moment, because it's very common to have low cortisol and low blood sugar um, kind of as, as your general paradigm. So if you have low cortisol to begin with, and you have insufficient regulation between the brain and the adrenal gland in terms of its production capacity, so that first time around 2 o'clock in the morning, when your brain goes to the adrenal system and says, hey, we need some help keeping our blood sugar and fuel status up. Give me a little bit of cortisol. If the adrenal system says, well, because there's intelligent, and obviously I'm, I'm kind of pretending that these are intelligent beings or sentient beings, but the adrenal system kind of says to itself, well, I don't have enough cortisol to satisfy my brain's request. So I can go to the backup plan, to the backup plan, which is adrenaline, because adrenaline does the same thing in terms of increasing blood sugar through gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. So what ends up happening when the brain comes to the adrenal gland around two o'clock in the morning and says, hey, how about a little squirt of cortisol to help us out? The adrenal says, I can't do it, but I can do the next best thing, which is adrenaline. Now, whether or not somebody in that scenario actually wakes up is going to be dependent on two things. Whether or not the adrenaline that comes out of the system into the bloodstream to bring up the blood sugar is an appropriate amount or does it get, uh, does it overshoot and make too much? 
cortisol will, I'm sorry, uh, adrenaline will directly activate the reticular activating system. Or perhaps, and it can be either or or both, or perhaps the brain is in a state of hypersensitivity where it's very, very sensitive to changes in the biochemical environment that it lives and works in. And maybe maybe there's a, a normal amount of, of adrenaline that comes out of the adrenals as a backup because they can't produce enough cortisol to, to match the demand. And even with that normal amount of adrenaline, if the brain is unhealthy, can be hyperstimulatory, and all of a sudden the reticular activating system triggers and the person wakes up at 2 o'clock. Now, this can happen at 2 o'clock, it can happen at 1.30, it can happen at 3 o'clock. All of this is going to depend, like the, the first waking event in a scenario like this is going to depend on multiple factors. Again, I'm just painting the big picture just to illustrate the mechanisms. And so this problem of somebody waking up throughout the night, whether or not they fell asleep easily or not is kind of irrelevant, even though it's a related part of the system, is almost always tied into some faulty mechanism between how the brain is requesting assistance to maintain fuel supply and the adrenal system's response by either producing sufficient cortisol or resorting to an adrenaline surge combined with the pre-existing health and state of the brain. Again, you can get normal cortisol or norm, normal adrenaline coming out of that, but if the brain is hypersensitized because it's not healthy, that normal response can lead to a waking event. And that can happen once. It can happen repeatedly. And, and typically what we find is that people who have these waking patterns that are rooted in this discoordinated relationship between brain and adrenals, cortisol, adrenaline, and blood sugar sufficiency... People who have these issues typically will wake up the first time around the same time all the time. It's always 2 o'clock. It's always 2.10. It's always 1.37. And if they wake up more than one time, it's usually a, a consistent interval. I wake up every hour and a half. Once I wake up, it's every hour and a half. It's every two hours. It's every hour and 45 minutes. Again, individual variability. And so the more we see somebody waking up, the more consistent these waking events and patterns are, the more likely it is rooted in a combination of bad brain, unhealthy brain, dysregulated hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and some discoordination of cortisol sufficiency or adrenaline compensation. This is almost always, almost always, the reason why people can't stay asleep once they fall asleep. Now, the other aspect of this is to have an understanding of what their waking state is. And I, I think I ended the last episode by pointing out that it's the same mechanism, but it's in different places on the continuum. If someone says to me, I wake up two, three, four times a night, but I'm just kind of drowsy and dozy and I fall back asleep in a short period of time and you know I'm kind of half aware, half awake. That's totally different than somebody who wakes up several times on the other end of the spectrum with this full-blown panic attack and a sense of doom. It's the same nature problem, same mechanism. It's a different scope and scale of severity. And generally, the more, the more extreme that response is, the worse the overall health is of the brain, 
and the and the more disintegrated is the communication and coordination between the brain and the the output center which is the adrenal gland itself quite frequently see this with people who have history of head injury concussion we see it in people who have uh, either early or you know i'm going to say age appropriate i don't even like saying that age appropriate neurodegeneration because i know i think your brain can age and not degenerate but you can also see it in in people who have um, say neurodevelopmental disorders you know either as young adults or as adults you know maybe they came out of um, they were somewhere in the autistic spectrum attention deficit disorder some kind of developmental issue that kind of extends into their later years very common very common in, in cases of autoimmunity, particularly if there's some kind of neurological autoimmunity. And also very common um, in people who have chronic and unrelating stressors that they either don't know to change or don't have the power to change because there are some stressors that we have zero control over. We just have to be able to buffer our system and our body against the ravages of what that stress represents for us. So in, you know, when I work with individuals, I have in my intake form several questions that kind of help me understand what's going on with this entire system. I ask them, you know, do you fall asleep easy? Yes or no. How often is it every night? Is it once in a blue moon? Those are two different scenarios. Then I want to know if they sleep through the night and if they wake up feeling rested. And if they don't sleep through the night, I want to know how many times they wake up and what the interval is between their waking events, what's the first time they wake up, and I wanna know more importantly, what kind of condition are they in when they wake up? Are you just kind of toss and turn, fall black asleep? Are you the other end of the spectrum, which is I'm having a panic attack, palpitations, rapid heart rate, night sweats, and I'm afraid of something? Or kind of like the middle ground is where someone wakes up and they're like, I'm wide awake to, I, I'm awake enough that I, I can go like clean the house. I mean, I'm not afraid. I don't have rapid heart rate. It's just, I'm so aware and alert that there's no point in me just laying back down because I'm not going to go sleep. I may as well get up and get something done at three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning, whatever the time frame is. And all of these things, when you put them together, creates... Um, an anticipation of, again, going back to circadian rhythms and doing saliva testing kind of creates an impression of what you might expect if you run formal testing. But an understanding of these dynamics tells us a lot about several core systems. It tells us about some blood sugar control and regulation problems, tells us about adrenal dysfunction, and it tells us about the role that the brain is playing and then the job is to start looking for things that we can do to offload the stress on the system so that we can begin to rebuild these communication relationships so the brain is adequately sending signals to the adrenals and the adrenals are responding appropriately. And a lot of this, as I said in the very beginning of this episode, and we'll close with this, 80% of the time, it's about your blood sugar, your adrenals, and how that affects the pre-existing state of your brain and your brain health. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll see you next time on The Inflammation Nation. Thank you so much for listening to The Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com 
To explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.